Welcome to Out of the Question, a podcast that looks behind some common questions and uncovers the question behind the question while providing real solutions for biblical world and life view. Your co-hosts are Pastor Steve Macias and Andrea Schwartz, a teacher and mentor. You are listening to episode number 84 of the Out of the Question podcast. I'm Andrea Schwartz, and today my co-host, Steve Macias, is going to give some background before we actually pose our question. Well, this week in the news, there's been big issues for public schools and government schools because our president, Donald Trump, has made a big executive order which basically takes a big step in removing the federal government away from education. And he's made remarks when he appointed Betsy DeVos as Secretary of Education, and he's made remarks with this executive order that he doesn't believe that the national or the federal government should be involved in local education. And there's this sentiment inside the Republican Party that they're going to give control back to local schools. And so the the background here is, is this a win? And is it a win because our team, you know, the people who support Christian education are going to get some federal relief? Uh, Or is it a win because uh, this is a good principle? How do we determine uh, when looking at education from a federal or a national level, uh, what is the godly and the the most biblical way to do this? And uh, I think the the current news story with Trump and Betsy DeVos can initially seem like a a victory, um, but it can also give us good questions to think about as far as uh, what does a godly government actually look like? All right, so the question we can say is this. Can the American public school system be redeemed or renovated in order to become godly? Hmm. Yeah, and that's a a good question because those of us who have even a a decade of political memory can remember that when the great evangelical (laughs) President George W. Bush was uh, elected, one of the very first things he did during his presidency, along with the support of of Ted Turner and, and John Boehner was he got no child left behind passed in a Republican Congress with a Republican president. And suddenly the federal government was going to make sure that children in schools were taken care of. And what it ended up doing was introducing a whole bunch of federal layers uh, of things that we generally would agree with, you know, that there should be test scores that reflect funding and, Children should have standardized tests every year, and there should be expectations that the public schools should have to meet certain standards. Uh, So what Donald Trump has done with Betsy DeVos seems to be a complete 180. You know, instead of putting money and legislation into a federal education program, it now seems that Republicans want to go the exact opposite direction and kind of uh, de-emphasize the federal role in education. So for many people 10 years ago or I guess it's more than 10 years ago, almost 20 years ago. <laughs> uh, it was a big victory to have a good Christian president determining education policy because our guys were winning and we were going to set what the schools looked like. But we saw during the Obama administration that all of those policies that were created in the, all those precedents that were created during the Bush era were now used by the Democrats to support all kinds of federal programs to support the Obama agenda. 
And so now it seems in reaction to the Obama agenda, Donald Trump is trying to remove federal government out of all of it. So the question is, how do you redeem schools for education in a godly way, knowing these structures exist? Right. And I would say the question behind the question, as is typical of what we do, is let's start with a biblical framework. Um, it's not that we can't say, gee, this is a better situation, that the feds are getting their hands out of it. But the question remains, whose hands should be in it? And are these partial measures, not that we can't say, okay, this is a step in the right direction, but is this the end goal? We just want the feds out, but it's okay for state governments and local governments to have their hands all over public education. Right. There's there's different layers here of, of ethical and judicial uh, legislation. But there's a fundamental principle that is not necessarily related to education, and that is uh, the idea of subsidiarity, or sometimes it's described in like the doctrine of lesser magistrates or a balance of powers. You know, the U.S. Constitution was developed as a, a covenant system, or in Latin, federal system, meaning that there were, uh, at the very base, the individual and family who delegate their powers to representatives, whether it was a county or a city, who delegated their powers to a, a larger entity, whether it was a state or a province or uh, in the early days a commonwealth, uh, and then they delegated their authorities to a, a national government. So this covenantal structure worked with the authority beginning at this nucleus of the family and being delegated up and up and up. Now, Today, the federal system kind of works the opposite direction. Most Americans think of the federal government as the highest authority. In fact, we think of the Supreme Court as being the law of the land. We think of Congress as being our lawmakers. And we think of the president as being our top commander, uh, when in actuality, those were all uh, inverted in the original framing of the Constitution. These were uh, delegated powers from the bottom to these other parties. Now, recently, I was listening to one of Dr. Rush Dooney's audio lectures, and it was entitled Tyranny. And he makes a very astute point where he says that we have taken tyranny and just narrowed the focus to civil affairs, civil government. And so we think of tyrants as people who operate outside the will of the people. However, the actual word in the Greek and how it was first used when translated for English usage was that someone who ruled outside the parameters of God's law. Mm. So that means that even if we like the guy who's in a position of authority, whether he be the husband, the father, the pastor, the employer, the civil magistrate, or going up the chain in the civil order, if those people operate outside of God's law, according to God's commandments, and maintaining proper jurisdiction, we could properly label them as tyrants. Right. Well, and tyrant today seems to be, it has to be so evil and, and so large, but the early American colonists called King George of England a tyrant uh, for a very, very small tax in a very unregulated colony. Uh, but the, as Rushdie points out in his early American history lectures, the tyranny of King George wasn't the tax. It wasn't even the burden of foreign rule. The tyranny was allowing, King George allowing Parliament 
a body without jurisdictional authority over the colonies to have that authority. So the early Americans said, even telling us that you have authority when you don't have authority, before you even take a dollar away from us or enslave us in any way, just by claiming authority you don't have makes you a tyrant. And this is where many Christians, because they tend to be antinomian in how they've been taught and oftentimes how they operate, it turns out that they are more afraid of men than they are of God. So if you are able to work around some law you don't like, and you can find a way that your side gets to then start making the laws, that's oftentimes considered a win. When in actual fact, the proper way to view this is God's not going to be mocked. There will be judgment if we don't do things God's way. That's right. It's uh, Too many Christians get the idea that, that power uh, is the same as authority. That somehow if we have the, the power to enforce our beliefs or our thoughts onto people, that somehow that is the same as having the authority. And what God says is that the true power of the gospel comes from following the delegated authority of the law, that the law has a natural balance to it that protects the identity and the fidelity of the various institutions. To restore a biblical family, you don't give all of the authority to the father and say, father, write the ship. No, you go back to the standards given by God and you balance out inside the family and against the other institutions. And that restores the true power and authority to the family. Which makes you think that maybe in God's economy, having a husband and wife, a father and a mother balances out that tendency to have anybody make themselves king. That's right. And we, we already know and we already recognize the kind of tyranny, even as, as small children. We, we think of corporal discipline, of, of spankings and things like that. We can very early on recognize when people are abusing the authority given to them. And so if children can recognize when parents are abusing their authority, then every institution outside of the family, Christian or non-Christian, can recognize when Christians are acting contrary to their established or stated sources of authority. And I think what we can get from the Christian idea is not that we want to collect all the power to the top so that everybody will behave and think and follow our rules, but rather that the best interest of all people who are made in the image of God is to follow God's standards and see themselves flourishing. Uh, so there's often this, this idea in theonomy or against Reconstructionism that we're kind of an American Taliban, that we're going to be just like the Ayatollah in Iran. And we're going to use whatever limited authority we have to enforce it down upon the people. That an American theocracy or a theonomic government would be oppressive or that it would restrict our behavior. But if we look at the legacy of the American Puritans or the Puritans in England, uh, they were known for being people of liberty, people of love, people of uh, family identity, because they were not attempting to take their human authority and put it upon us, but rather they recognized God's law and the people were allowed to flourish inside of their God-given roles. And so the law is a tutor to Christ. So as your society is bound and grounded on God's law, 
those who are not in covenant will be able to observe how when things are done in covenant, they're more orderly and they, they work in a proper way. Now, you mentioned that children will know if they are in an abusive kind of situation. I would just qualify that and say, if they know the law of God. I've often told homeschooling moms who I've mentored, you know, the most dangerous thing you can do, and I put dangerous in quotes, is teach your children the law of God. Because when you start violating it, they'll be able to notice. And so it's very important that children learn from their parents that, yes, you're under my authority, but I'm under God's authority. And just like you're not free to disobey me without consequences, I'm not free to disobey God without consequences. That's right. And those consequences are, to use a, a word that presuppositionalists like us don't really like, those consequences are natural. So the things that we recognize in economic systems, you know, like the free market, profit and loss, distribution of wealth, the ability to attract customers to sell, those are natural processes that work because we have a, a Christian anthropology. We recognize that men are basically sinful. They're going to try to steal and get whatever's in their best interest, but also that they have basic needs of you know, food, clothing, shelter. They want to be entertained. They want to move up Pavlov's hierarchy. They want to find comfort and purpose and meaning. But because of those natural tendencies of man, all of our social structures will all move in the same directions. So when we talk about uh, distribution of power or authority, when Christians allow the law of God to govern our society, we're all going to move in the same direction. Me and my Muslim neighbor next door uh, both want to have a safe place for our kids. We both want to have a a safe street. We want to have clean streets. We want to have a place for our, our families to play, to live, to enjoy this life. And that's true for our atheist neighbor and our uh, it's true for our Buddhist neighbor. And so there are natural tendencies uh, or balances in our life and in our world that are reactions, or perhaps we could say they are uh, the outputs of our interactions with each other. And so when we talk about authority, if we allow God's law to be the standard, everybody, whether they believe in God or not, goes into those standards the same way, and the law of God treats them all equally. And then rather than rely on, we've got to get the power so we can force people to do things, we should embrace what Jesus says when he says, let your light shine before men so that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. In other words, at the point at which someone is truly born again, then the Holy Spirit enlightens their minds to see how God's way is the right way. God's law is the right law. And rather than having to force people to believe, what we create is a system and a structure where the law of God is going to be operative for them, whether or not they call themselves believers. And the funny part about it is that people of different religions flourish as people who are able to support their family, make a living, etc., based on the fact of a Christian social order. It's when the Christian social order goes away that then you have problems. Right. Too often we give away the farm in the form of values. Uh, we need to remember that the things that make our social structures work, you know, diligence, honesty, and orientation towards the future, 
a consideration for the human value of our neighbor. You know, those things that say we shouldn't kill or steal or hurt or lie or bear false witness or defraud, those moral standards are all found in their root in the law of God. And so without the law of God as your standard of saying, this is how you run a bank, this is how you have an exchange of goods, this is how you treat the person as they walk across your front yard, without that law standard, that moral standard of right and wrong, really society cannot flourish. But what Christians often do is we say, because we've lived in Western Christianity for 2,000 years, is we assume that every culture would just be like this, that they would not try to defraud you, or they would not try to uh, you know, steal from you, or that they would recognize that those things are wrong. But we live in a time when these values have been passed on to us by our Christian founders. There are certain places in the world where this is obviously not true, and here in our part of the world, it's becoming less and less true. But once we recognize that the values or the law of God that holds our society together must be enmeshed in our exchanges, then we can recognize that the further advance of all men is found in that same law. And when the sanctions that God says need to be applied for certain offenses aren't done or aren't established in the social order, and Christians say, oh, yes, we should obey the Ten Commandments. However, there's no way that we could possibly enforce violation of the Ten Commandments because that would be too harsh or cruel. Then the foundations get destroyed because if I tell you not to do something and you say, well, what happens if I do it? And I say, nothing. Guess what? That law has no teeth. So the social order must have the law established the law enforced, and then the proper sanctions administered for violations. And every law system or every country has those already. And so the question isn't, are we going to have a country that follows the law and has sanctions and punishments for that? The difference between a really godly reconstructionist or theonomic society and one that hates God is not whether or not they will have laws and punish lawbreakers and the society is based on a law. The difference is, will those specific laws, the way that they're discovered and the way that they're enforced, will it match what God says those laws are to be? I have a really good example. This is years ago. I was visiting a friend who was very pro-homeschooling and knew I had homeschooled and was still homeschooling. And she told me about her neighbors. And her neighbors, she had no problem with them being disrespectful or destroying property. But she thought that that woman spent way too much time having her children do their musical instruments. And she had this impression that they weren't getting a good education. And so she sort of threw out there that she was wondering who she should report them to. Now, this was a Christian woman her, her real gripe was that the lady next door wasn't doing things the way she would have done it. And she was trying to figure out who to report them to, because in her mind, there was this authority that could come down and then make this woman do what she thought this woman should do. And so we had quite a conversation. And I asked her, because she was somewhat familiar with God's law, is there any place in the scripture that you know of that God says that if a family wants to have the children concentrate on music to the expense of grammar or spelling that they are sinning against God's law. And she goes, well, no. 
but it was so hard to dislodge her from this mindset that said, who gets to make the decisions according to God's word. And there was probably some other underlying ideas that were guiding her, her thoughts here. She didn't acknowledge that that parent had the authority over their children to dis- decide what education meant for them. Right. So um, she was trying to intercede from her family's authority into another family's authority. And so that's you know disrupting these natural boundaries that exist in God's law as well. And there was probably other cases being made. Why does it matter if this child uh, has a good education? Right. Well, God wants them to have good education so they can study the scripture, be productive members of the kingdom. But a lot of people think of education in terms of social good. Well, if we don't give people a good education, they're going to turn out to be criminals. Uh, They're not going to contribute to society. We're going to have to support them on social services. And it's those type of not related to the word of God arguments that seem to guide a lot of Christians' view of education as well. So we go back to where we started here. So, okay, great. The federal government is going to take its hands out of education, which basically would mean there aren't going to be, there isn't going to be the flow of money, tax money going in that direction. But is that the end goal that we live in California? The state of California, God help us, should be the permanent dis, you know, decider as to what we learn and what we don't. You see, is if we don't acknowledge that education is not only religious, but it's also presuppositional, then the question becomes, where do we draw the line? Do we draw the line and say, okay, it's good to get the feds out, but let it be local? Well, okay, but it depends on who's local. So if you happen to live in a city or a county where those in control on the local level hate God and his commandments, are you better off? Well, and I think that asks two different questions. I think there's a principle uh, in Christian politics or identity uh, that we can understand that lower courts, right, the county or the city, the local school board, are easier to control and can, in some sense, represent the wishes of local families better, right? For example, if you read Dr. Rushney's uh, pamphlet on uh, police power, he makes that same case against the federal police versus local police. Rushney loved the idea of the local elected sheriff who was accountable to the people who elected him. But when you looked at, you know, the federal police who were appointed by legislators who had no one they're accountable to, they could go from state to state, they could make up their own rules and laws. Then we get what we end up with today, which is a police state. They can listen to you. They can arrest you, can make up laws. It can give you secret courts, you know, all that crazy stuff we see at the federal level, which is far detached from the local sheriff who, you might know and vote for and actually know his family, what church he belongs to. So there's a practical sense in the law of God that the people at the local level are people who you can actually know and hold accountable. So that there's a sense there that the federal government issue is a problem because there is no witness to their authority. Who, who can testify against a, a federal person who they didn't elect or delegate authority to? It's a completely different system. A lot of people don't realize that, you know, when you want to go, we got to go back to early America. Well, in early America, there were some rules that in order to be someone who could run for office or someone who could vote, they wanted to know that people held to 
the standard of the Bible and, and biblical thinking. But if we try to divorce that mindset of the people who were here when our republic was formed and, and the local governments, etc., then we somehow or other try to make our constitution or state constitutions work apart from the fact that they were governed by a mindset that said there are absolute rights and wrongs. Um, marriage is between a man and a woman. They wouldn't have had to say that because it was a common understanding. So in order to understand why the American experiment has worked for as long as it has, you have to look at the foundation and say, what was it based on primarily? What did the people think? Yes, there was a common morality of the people, uh, a common legal code between even the various denominations that existed in early America. That was one of the significant parts of the American experiment as well, is that you had folks who were Congregationalists or Anglican or, or Presbyterian or Quakers, and they were all kind of coexisting with a common understanding of God's law as the foundation, and they were able to build cooperative structures on top of that. You know, with your example of the the mother who wants to criticize another mother how they do education, we find ourselves doing the same type of thing with government regulating businesses. I mean, how many people have you seen complaining? You know that that store down the street they want to charge four times what it's worth for that particular product. Well, let them do it. The people will recognize it. They'll stop going. They'll press to go out of business. Right? There's a natural process where if you act contrary to justice and and uh, contrary to the good of the people, you don't need the government to come fix it in. God's law will sort these things out. If you defraud somebody, your reputation will be destroyed. Unfortunately, today, banks that are protected by the federal government can defraud people night and day in their protected form. God's law wouldn't allow that. Uh, individuals who defraud people are protected by the encroachment of governments in places where God's law does not allow. One of our, our favorite thinkers, uh, Murray Rothbard, talks about how the existence of monopolies, something that we really hate in our government, uh, exists only because government intervene into business. And it's the same thing that is true with pretty much every injustice in every issue related to our government. The government comes in, stepping outside of its boundaries, and injustices are created by sidestepping God's law and trying to add power that's not there. And what happens is that once you take an ounce of power that hasn't been delegated to its proper authority, it's impossible to bring that power back to its biblical standard without a biblical people. So to give a, an illustration of this, back when I was in college, uh, we did this huge campaign to take over the student government. And we got a bunch of individuals to run who were part of my Republican student club. And we took it over and we went back to the county Republican Party and we said, we just won five seats on, on the student government. And now we're in control of the entire student services budget. And so at this school, every student, every quarter paid 40 bucks into a student activities fund. And so there were literally tens of thousands of dollars in this account that we could do really whatever we wanted to. And in the past, the liberals who controlled the student government would use it to support, you know, Planned Parenthood days. They'd support crazy things in the student newspaper. They'd send the kids to these liberal Lemecha conferences and, and do things that were very left-leaning. And so me and my cadre of Republicans were very excited that now we could start using this money that uh, had been misused for so many years to start supporting Republican causes. Maybe we can have 
you know, a paper, a nice speaker to come out and we can start publishing Republican things and, and maybe some libertarian thinkers in our student newspaper. And we could start spending money going to conservative conferences. We were going to take all of their weapons and use them for our cause and start advancing what we were going to do. And one of the people from the Republican committee that we were meeting with said, no, don't do that. You see, if you spend that money for your cause, stepping outside your principles, because you believe those things shouldn't have been there to begin with. There shouldn't have been money collected from the people. There shouldn't have been money spent for liberal causes. But if you go ahead and you use that money for conservative causes, then when you graduate in two years and the next group of liberals comes in, they're going to keep using that money for the left. So you'll have made no progress. You'll be a drop in the bucket and everything you've done will go away. But if you go and you start getting rid of these budgets saying it's inappropriate for us to support political causes with student money. It's inappropriate for us to continue to support these left-leaning causes. And you start destroying these illegitimate purchases and uses of money that were overstepping their authority. Then when the next group comes along, you've actually made progress because they don't get to start where they picked off. They have to justify, again, overstepping these boundaries. Did you listen? We did. We did listen. And um, it was very disappointing because I felt like, well, we just won this big victory. And now you want to tell us to not do anything. But the, the strange thing in the Christian world is that moving backwards or moving down or consolidating power to where it should be is true progress. It's not the consolidation of power in authority, but rather relieving that authority to where it properly belongs gives us progress. A great Chesterton quote. That, that goes something like, the business of progressives is to go about making mistakes of the world. And the business of conservatives is to go about making sure they're not corrected. You know, this, this idea that there's this runaway progressivism and conservatism is always a step behind it saying, yes, but not one step further, but not one step further. Where Reconstruction or, or Dr. Rushton's philosophy says, let's cut it down to the root. Let's go back. What does God allow us to do? That's where we're going to find true progress, hope, and future, not by one step behind the progressives. So a good rule of thumb, if you're deciding who to vote for, whether it's your local school board or whatever, really examine the people who want to return things to their proper jurisdictions. And examine yourself and say, am I really a statist so long as my guys are the ones pulling the strings? Or... Am I going to be faithful to God's word and not give in to my own tyrannical tendencies that until we're fully sanctified are still going to crop up from time to time and be willing to follow the advice of that party member who said to you, no, don't, do, don't use their weapons. Use the weapons that God gives you, which, of course, primarily is the word of God. That's right. And the word of God is the perfect example of this. There are many denominations, like the Roman Catholics, who have a magisterium, a top-down, what the Pope says goes type of authority. And it's a false authority. If you meet two Roman Catholics today, you're going to meet two different types of Christians. You can meet a Jesuit, you can meet a, a Latin Rite extremist, and they can be more further apart than, <laughs> than two other different denominations. There's a false sense that authority gives strength and unity. But the real truth is that we're supposed to decentralize it back to the explicit commandments of the scripture. Now, I can go to 
the Bible Baptist Church down the street from us. And they can say, well, the authority for me is the word of God alone. And I, as an Anglican, can say the same thing. The authority for me is the word of God alone. And we can get down, open up our Bibles. And if we have a disagreement, we have the same standard. And there's no way to wiggle around about what it is. Whereas if I got two Roman Catholics, they can say, well, St. Francis in the 14th century said this, which contradicts Pope so-and-so who did this. The same thing is true in our governments. If we give our authority to the top-down, one year President Obama is going to say something, the next year is going to be President Trump. The way the American system was set up was to be modeled and mimic the way the Bible is. You go back to the Constitution, if it's not list, listed here as a power, then you can't do it the same way we read the Scripture. If it's not listed here as a doctrine, as a matter of faith, then you, then you can't enforce other people to do it. And so this idea of enumeration allows a great deal of freedom and liberty even though it's centered around the law of God. This is how the law of God becomes a place of liberty, not of constriction. This is why we are not the Ayatollah who make up all these rules about face scarves and uh, not drinking liquor and all these strange things. They're going beyond the law of God to the law of man, and the result is not liberty, but oppression. We're seeing the same thing done not just by religious extremists, but by environmental extremists. If you believe their law of man, that the world's going to end from global warming through the ice age that's impending or however they cage their environmentalism today, they got to make new laws that constrict your behaviors, what you buy, what you eat, what you drive, because theirs is not a law of liberty, but one of control, top-down control. So the way of reconstruction is the only path of liberty and freedom. So, some recommendations. Rush Dooney has a book entitled Law and Liberty, an excellent primer in terms of really getting your head around these concepts. And then he had a series of radio lectures that he gave, I believe it's 60s and 70s, and they're entitled Our Threatened Freedom. And you can find those audio versions on the Chalcedon site, but you can also find a book by the same name, which is the compilation of all those lectures in printed form. And uh, I think if you haven't had a chance to look at that, you'll realize that there are a lot of attitudes and perspectives that you have that maybe you've never questioned but should. That's right. And if you're interested more about a Christian view of education uh, in, in relation to the federal government, Dr. Ron Paul wrote a book called The School Revolution a couple of years ago that kind of goes through how today government schools have had every opportunity to be successful, but the more centralized and status they've become, the worse they've actually done. Uh, so that book's called The School Revolution. It's a great book on this. Excellent. All right, Steve, thank you. Till next time. Thank you. And listeners, you can contact us with questions or suggestions for topics out of the question podcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening to Out of the Question. For more information on this and other topics, please visit calcedon.edu.